Hello and welcome to Books and Badgers. I'm your co-host Colin and with me is your other co-host Trevor. (laughs) Trevor, how's it going? I'm doing great. How are you feeling about being in season four? I can't believe that we're already at Mariel of Redwall. It's wild. I know we took a little bit of a break for the holidays, but it is so fun to come back to Redwall and and then to feel like, oh, wow, we really are four books in to the series now. And I really feel like Mariel of Redwall is coming into like the full swing of what Redwall really is. So yeah, wild experience. Yeah, absolutely crazy. And you are right. We took a little bit of a hiatus. So if you didn't see us posting on social media or you've been missing those weekly updates, um, we did take some time just away from the podcast for uh, for friends and family and to get some nice holiday cheer in uh, before the start of the new year. So now that we're back in season four, oh man, we have a lot that's coming up for this year, which I'm super excited about. Uh, I got to see you not too long ago, which is pretty awesome. Uh, we've great. also yep. been able to to talk about some other books. I know that you're always reading some things. So um, yeah, what are some of those things that you're reading? Well, I'm in the process of reading a whole bunch of stuff. I've read some stuff over the break. Probably most interesting to this podcast, I read a book called The Lost War by Justin Lee Anderson. It is some fantasy, adult fantasy this time, uh, that really reads a lot like a D&D campaign set into a book. And so that was kind of a fun read. Um, I don't think that it has nearly as much depth of emotion and character as something like Redwall, but it was still a pretty fun fantasy read. And I also just recently finished Amy Avery's The Longest Autumn, which is a very different kind of fantasy novel. Uh, Whereas I think the Lost War is a lot more action oriented and kind of a D&D sort of swords and sorcery experience. The Longest Autumn is a much more serious fantasy about kind of learning one's identity, uh, trying to come into terms with who you are as a person. Um, it's about a girl who serves a god and she tries to go through this mirror with him that is the source of godly power and it breaks due to a curse that's been placed on her. And she spends the rest of the book trying to figure out what that means for her future, what that means for her relationship with the gods and whether or not it is worth trying to track down the source of her curse um, as she deals with the aftermath. It's a really interesting book. So yeah, plenty of stuff out there to explore. Yeah, that's really cool. I was I was surprised on your Goodreads to see you diving into so much fantasy. I was like, whoa, who's this guy reading, reading more fantasy outside of Redwall? Uh, <laughs> cool that you took a little detour with those. Uh, the Lost War w- looks pretty cool. I like that cover a lot and ended up picking it up as a Kindle Daily deal. So I'll give it a read yeah. sometime. I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, again, I, I think that it has its limitations and its strengths, but one of the strengths absolutely is that it is a lot of fun and there's a lot of action and adventure and there's a really big twist that I'm not going to spoil, but it it was a lot of fun to read. And I definitely went and rushed out to pick up the sequel and I'll, I will probably report back on what I think of it later this year. 
Oh, wow. This year, I was going to joke and say in five years when you get through some of your TBR. Uh, but that's great. Uh, for myself, I've been reading. Uh, I had, had quite a little uh, reading spell over the break outside of Redwall. Um, I read a lot more of Paper Menagerie by Ken Liu, which is uh, which is great. I really yeah. liked it a lot. I really kind of like the the short story format over a long period of time where you can kind of go out and read a story. And uh, there's some that I just wish you would write full on books on because they're just really great mm-hmm. ideas. Uh, and then I, I I had this thing last year where I said, OK, I'm not going to start any new series until I finish series. <laughs> and so I closed out all a bunch of series. But it's 2024, baby. So I started a Game of Thrones, a Song of Ice and Fire. Uh <laughs> And uh, finished that first book over the break, which was uh, uh, it's a, it's good. I, it definitely lives up to the hype. Um, I don't really have much experience with that series. So uh, mm. I really enjoyed the first one and will definitely be uh, reading the second. Awesome. Yeah, I've never actually read the first book. I've only read like maybe one or two of the earliest chapters and then was kind of like, I don't know if I have time for this nonsense now. And <laughs> yeah, I will say that first book really just spends a lot of time setting up the the, the world and setting up the houses, yeah. and the politics. When I say politics, it's, you know, about these these different kingdoms that are kind of at war. And within uh, these kingdoms, they have different factions or houses that are are, are all uh, scheming to, to try to um, get power. So, um yeah, it's it's definitely worth the read. I I've never seen this show before. I don't really know much about this. I had a friend kind of convince mm. me to read the book, and uh, definitely enjoying it. Do you have any reading goals for the new year? Now that we're firmly in the middle of January, ooh, reading goals. I like that. Yeah, so I have a, my Goodreads challenge is thirty five books, which I, you're aware of. So trying to read thirty five books. Um, I'd really like to. Uh, do a little bit more short stories um, because I just really Mm. like short stories and I think they're a great way to explore some really awesome ideas and some authors that um, maybe you don't want to dive into a whole series of theirs but they have some pretty cool work that's out there Um, so that's that's kind of one of my reading goals Um, and then I also have a great opportunity to read a lot more for work so um, my, my work has been very generous to set up some uh or send me some books to read over the, this quarter and next quarter. So um, that's kind of like a goal too, just to kind of grow more professionally. What about you? I think I'm trying to reach out into more speculative genres than just horror. I have always been in love with science fiction and fantasy. And I think prior to discovering horror, I would have said that I'm primarily a science fiction reader, but I've turned away from it in recent years to focus a lot more on horror because of my podcast. And I'm trying to push out a little bit more for the podcast to represent more diversity in speculative fiction. So my reading goal this year really is to incorporate more different kinds of speculative fiction, which would include fantasy and science fiction and to build more, conversations around those speculative genres with different authors. So, so far in the new year, I feel pretty confident about that. I have a a dark fantasy interview coming up with Sarah Porter. She wrote this book 
called Projections that comes out in February. That was really, really good feminist dark fantasy. I interviewed Amy Avery for the show with The Longest Autumn. And I think I've got some other speculative fiction authors kind of on the horizon that I'm aiming to get. So I, I think I'm pretty excited to represent more of that kind of fiction in the stuff that I'm already reading. That's super cool. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of good things coming up and we do, we do have some cool things coming up with, uh, with books and badgers, but we're, we're going <laughs> to save yes, that for a surprise later. Um, <laughs> what do you say we jump into book one, the maid and the sea? Oh, sorry. <laughs> book one, the maid from the sea. I, I think it's time. All right, let's do it. Mariel of Redwall starts off with book one, The Maid from the Sea. In chapter one, we're introduced to this book's major cast. Abbot Bernard surveys Mossflower beside Simeon, who is the Abbey's herbalist. Together, they remark upon the weather and think on young Dandon, their Abbey log beater. Meanwhile, far to the northwest, Gabool the Wild our story's major villain, surveys a great and terrible storm over his island while a young mouse maid struggles in the wild sea. Oh boy, starting out with a lot of a lot of new characters, faces that we don't really know. Um, I don't really have too many notes on this, except that I think this might be my favorite introduction of a villain that we've had yet. It's a um. great intro, and and I, I want to hear why it it works for you. But um, I I think that this first chapter is one of my favorite first chapters of any of the the four books that we're now getting into. Um, right. It it sets such a a broadly sweeping kind of epic tone for the book. We see three different locations with their own different kind of problems. And I love that composition to just bring us in kind of drop us in Moss flower. And, and now that we're four books in, you know, we're kind of like, all right, we know what, what Jake's is kind of going to do for us. Let's just go ahead and set us up. Who are the major players and how is this story going to look in comparison to the three that came before it? Yeah, I really like this first chapter because we kind of get the setting of the the young Redwall, where Redwall is still being built or being built upon. And uh, Simeon uh, is blind, but we see kind of like this refined palate that he has, like he's drinking the cordials <laughs> and he's like, oh, I can tell you what the cordial this is. Um, and so it's just like kind of the calm day to day kind of thing. But then we switch over to Gabul and he's like chanting a war cry over you know the a storming sea uh just completely fearless and we have a kind of a damsel in distress that's in the water so it's completely flipped from what's going on there on the redwall side um i just really thought that his introduction was very uh verbose i guess like he just kind of <laughs> comes out and is just it's very uh and it's also chapter one i mean he's here right in chapter one i don't think we've ever had a a villain being introduced on the same 
uh, chapter one. Well, maybe even Mossflower. I'd have to fact check that. But yeah, I th- I think we are introduced. Well, no, I don't think we're introduced to a major villain in Mossflower until like the second chapter two. Because Clooney yeah. comes in like chapter two or three of the Redwall stuff so. of the the first book. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> well, we'll have to listen back to the show and check ourselves. <laughs> Um, no, I, I think you're right. Like Gabul is just already primed to be this kind of terrific force for the book, um, overseeing the sea. And this is another thing that I really enjoyed about this book because we've had allusions to these sea pirates and kind of what is going on in the northernmost reaches of Mossflower County and, and then the world outside of just Mossflower. But this is, I think, the first time we really get a picture like this is going to be a book that is going to incorporate a lot of that northern sea frontier. Well, in chapter two, back at Redwall, Abbey goers prepare for the coming storm, introducing us to the Abbey's main cast, which includes Danden, Mother Mellis, Gabe Quill, and Simeon. I have almost no notes for this new cast of characters simply because I there were no familiar faces. I didn't really have a lot of opinions of this. Uh, I think Danden is clearly the main character. I mean, we got an introduction to him in chapter one. Uh, he makes kind of the center stage appearance in beating the drum. Uh, that's uh, well, we don't have a, a bell in Redwall. We kind of learned right. that. So instead, he's kind of the the drummer of the drum that's in place of where the bell would be to kind of signal some events within Redwall. Uh, so kind of taking the center stage with that. Uh, but yeah, I don't really have any other <laughs> notes here. I think Mother Mellis is very familiar to um, some of the other uh, badgers that we've seen before. Um, so uh, it's it's kind of more of the same, but also very different. Uh, not Not very familiar faces. Yeah, it's kind of hard to talk about these characters without just resorting to archetypes because they have not yet had a chance to really like step into their shoes. And I think that for me was probably the most novel feeling part of this book because we're not dealing with Martin, we're not dealing with Matameo or Matthias or any of the characters that have come before in the previous three books these are totally new characters that we've never even heard of before. Nobody talked about Danden before or Mother Mellis. We've never heard Abbott Bernard mentioned before. Um, really, there's only kind of one character that shows up in the next chapter that might even be recognizable to us in terms of the total lore of Redwall. Um, so, yeah, it's it's. A little disorienting, yeah. Yeah. Chapter three, Gabul sits in Fort Bladegirt with his fellow sea rats, each making merry over recent plunders, which include a magnificent bell. One of Gabul's fellows, Bloodrig, challenges Gabul for a payment, and Gabul swiftly beheads him. Meanwhile, the mouse maid that was lost to sea washes up on shore alive and bravely fends herself off from scavenging seagulls, 
wielding the very knotted ropes of her former detention to protect herself. Oh, man, I love this little interaction that Gabul has um, with his uh, <laughs> subordinate blood rig, blood rig, right? Yeah, so mm-hmm. I, this is such a very uh, Redwall villain-esque thing to, to kind of um, prove how ruthless and cruel they are. And that's no different than Gabul the Wild, where um, Bloodrick comes to him and says, hey, I want my bounty. I want my booty that you promised me. And he's like, oh, of course, come drink some wine, have some cheese. I'll definitely give that to you. And then uh, swiftly decapitates or uh, cuts off his head um, while he's, you know, basically, I think he's trying to fish out a crown or something like that. Um, yeah. I think this is the scene with the crown. And this is one of the, man, this is one of my favorite little tropes in fantasy is the upstart who, you know, kind of wants to take some power and the person who is in power, who leads them on by letting them believe that they're about to assume, you know, some like magnificent role and then just swiftly, swiftly has them killed off. I just love that trope in fantasy and i think that this is kind of the perfect little interaction here um because you're right blood rig wants his bounty and so gabool says all right well here take this crown and offers it to him like via sword point (laughs) yeah and so blood rig puts the crown on and then swiftly has his head cut off by gabool and i think that that's just such a Man, it's nasty. It's villainous. Mm-hmm. It's also one of those like this definitely sets up the character's pecking order. It's <laughs> you, you don't ask for power from Gabul. He has the power and uh, he's he's going to ensure that he keeps it um, so, at sword point. Yeah, and this is very familiar to what Slagar the Cruel does when we kind of get to his introduction where someone steps up and says, I don't remember who it is, but says like, are you sure this is a good idea? And he just like does this whole kind of uh, public flare before killing him. This this is the same kind of vibe that Gabul does in this situation. Um, There's a lot of tension that Jake does a really good job of kind of writing in this interaction where he's giving him the treasure. Uh, that just really sets the stage well. And then I think we have the most iconic scene in this whole book already in <laughs> chapter three with um, this uh, mouse mane that's lost lost uh, to sea at sea that washes up and fends off some uh, goals with uh, a knotted rope. Um, hmm, that seems really familiar to what we see on the cover. <laughs> Uh, i think this is if you ask any redwall fan i think that they would say that this is what they associate most with this book but i'd love to hear your thoughts on it trev no i think you're right i mean uh she names the rope goal whacker uh either in this chapter or just after um and and i think that when we talk about some of the legendary weapons of the entire series I absolutely remember, you know, Mariel with Gullwhacker. <laughs> like it just, it's synonymous. Um, just like you would think Orlando the Axe is named for that. Uh, Gullwhacker is one of the few weapons in the entire series that I remember from my first read through. So much of this book, I don't remember a, a single thing, except I remember who Mariel was and I remember 
that she carried around a rope that she thwacked people with. Well, in chapter four at Redwall, the storm has passed and the young ones of the Abbey are up to some mischief. Dandon and his friend Saxton are summoned by Brother Hubert, the Abbey recorder, to review Redwall's history. Dandon, who is great-great-grandson of Gonf, has no head for or moral codes. I'm sorry, moral codes or oral codes um, or histories, except when it comes to stories of Martin the Warrior whose tapestry the Abbey is currently weaving. Dandon and Saxton finish their lesson and go to prepare a feast for Abbot Bernard. Um, we get a, 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 a glimpse into that familiar name they kind of referenced just a few chapters ago, which is Dandon is the great-grandson of Gomph. And uh, that, I gotta say, that completely changed my perception of Dandon in this purely because... I was like, oh, okay, so he's the Gomp archetype, and I love Gomp, and so it's cool to see him here again. <laughs> kind of makes sense as to his um, his cheekiness, if 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 you will, mm-hmm. um, of, of his character. So uh, I, I thought that was really cool. I couldn't remember what the name of the two otter otters are um, the ones that are kind of causing lots of mischief. Um, we start to see kind of this hierarchy of mischief in Redwall, where we have the the young otters are kind of causing all these troubles that that are there and dandon's kind of looked at as being someone who's not supposed to stoop down to their level of mischief because they can get away with it because they're younger right dandon has a little bit more responsibility um or is required to have more responsibility in the in Redwall, and we also see that with his relationship with with saxtus and uh and uh, Simeon as they're kind of talking through what it means to contribute to Redwall or what what's important for Redwall. So um, definitely building up some character for Dandon in his journey that I'm sure that we'll see if this is anything like some of the Redwall books that we've read. Yeah, I think what is great about the scene between Dandon and Saxtus is that they're sitting and kind of receiving these lessons of like the history of the Abbey. And Saxtus is very much aware of the Abbey's history and the Abbey's code of conduct and the reason for the Abbey existing, but has no real interest in any of the military history of Redwall and why their society looks the way it it does but dandon has this intrepid spirit that i think he of course inherited from the original gonf and he really is most interested in action not the politics or you know the social niceties he's really into you know taking action to shape the world around you and so he has this great affection for martin the warrior and the story of Martin. So it it definitely builds up Dandon as like, this is the Abbey's warrior spirit, right? He is going to be this generation's Matthias, this generation's Martin. Um, it's in his blood for sure, but it's also in kind of his philosophy of being. And, and I just think that Jake's does a great job of establishing that for us in this chapter. So in chapter five, Gabool sends out his raiding parties and contemplates 
whether or not he'll need to kill another of his captains over his previous execution of Bloodrick. He sets up a trap for a future fight, then reflects on the bell he calls his bounty. He interrogates Joseph the Bellmaker, whom he holds captive, and demands a bell tower be constructed for his mighty bell. Joseph refuses, citing that the bell rightfully belongs to the Badger Lords of Salamandastron, for whom he made the bell. Gabul is infuriated by Joseph's resistance, but promises to show him to his daughter, who is allegedly in captivity. Joseph is tricked into reading the bell's inscription to Gabul, but is then cast over the ramparts of Fort Bladegirt into the ocean below, just like his daughter. Meanwhile, the mouse maid struggles across the beach where she landed and discovers some water, which reinvigorates her. Yet another chapter that I absolutely love with Gabul. One of the best parts of this is the little trap that he sets. It's not sprung in this chapter, but he hides a sword, I believe, is behind a curtain. And we kind of know that it's there, but we don't know exactly what's going to happen with it. Um, But it's just a very, it kind of shows to Gabul's cleverness. Um, And then this was a genuine, genuine revelation for me that the Joseph Bell (laughs) is the bell, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's Joseph the Bellmaker. Bell's not at Redwall. So I love that little connection. um, And it kind of gives a very good... um, it gives a, a very good point in time as to where this book is taking place because um, mm-hmm. it's at the very beginning, kind of the, the earlier foundation of Redwall, um, but before the Joseph Bell has been set. So we kind of are learning where we are in, in, in this point in time. Uh, I also think that this gives a lot more history and kind of lore to the Joseph Bell, which we know is what killed Clooney and then <clears> is <throat> later divided into two bells once it splits. So there's a huge history that's happening with this. And so I really love that Jake's includes this lore and this inscription. And uh, when Joseph reads the inscription to Gabul, we get a little bit of a, a, a glimpse into um, um, prophecy, like a kind of a prophetic vision that's on this bell, which is very, very cool. Uh, so much to love and nerd out about with this chapter. And then the other thing I just got to mention is we have this incredible scene that Jake's kind of writes with uh, Gabul and Joseph and their interaction. And then we cut to, to um, the, the sea maid that's been washed up uh, who we can just say is Mariel, right? It's not really a spoiler. We yeah. all know this is Mariel. Okay. Um, this is the most confusing <laughs> chapter or kind of paragraph because I did not understand how did she is she on the beach and she finds this water does she dig up and find spring water that's on the coastline i really didn't understand the topography (laughs) for this this because she's just not far from the beach because she fended off all the the goals and there's the goals are even close to the coastline so is she drinking up seawater like this is so bizarre yeah, I see what you mean. I I think there's some heavy lifting being done by like the the coastal map that is provided to us at the very beginning of the book. Um because we know that at least we know from from Mossflower, right, that surrounding the beach on the coastline is marshland, 
and um, the marshland is occupied by toads, right? Um, we know that from uh, when Martin and his company, you know, kind of passed through and they had that, that whole encounter with the frogs um, before making it to the beach. So I, I think that this is intended to be like, oh, all right, she's she's tread up the beach and now she's, you know, kind of moved into this borderland uh, kind of space. Um, but you're so right. She's pretty I far mean, inland is what you're saying. Yes. She's, yeah. she's not. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Kind of the transition into that swamp land that, yeah, that, that exists, that, that kind of borders just outside of Mossflower proper. Got it. Okay. Yeah. This is one where I was like, Jake's, this is just like when Matthias is dangling outside of, um, outside of, <laughs> um king bull sparrow's nest like this I, this your writing doesn't really describe this very well dude <laughs> i will say one of the things that does confuse me a lot about jake's writing when he does this sort of thing is like how much time is actually passing in between these moments that's it um, yeah. that's because we're being it. delivered a story that seems to be occurring simultaneously in terms of when we're reading it and yet he plays real fast and loose with how much time actually passes in between, you know, moment to moment when we see these characters. So I do want to preface that I am a dumb, dumb reader though. So it's possible <laughs> that I just didn't understand it. Um, I mean, it could also be that I, I just give Jake's so much grace. Like I just am like, all right, whatever it is. Sure. I'm, I'm not going to ask questions because if I ask too many questions, it, it's going to spin me off into nowhere <laughs> yeah i gotta say i love gabool's like kind of setting up a booby trap for this future confrontation that he's planning around but i especially love the introduction of the joseph bell um we saw the bell previously so it's like oh he's got a big bell but then we're introduced to joseph the, the bell maker and it's clear okay this is the joseph bell that we're talking about and it answers a question that I think sets up what this whole book is about. And the whole book is just like, all right, how did Redwall get its bell? And this is the tale. This is the grand adventure of how Redwall came to possess this magnificent bell that killed Clooney the Scourge. I also love that there is this kind of prophecy or, or prophetic magic that surrounds Salamandastron and the Badger Lords. They are kind of the source for any of this kind of like mysticism. And the bell is one of those kind of sources of prophetic power because it's imbibed with this inscription that nobody but the Badger Lords can really understand or know. And the inscription itself is of course a form of prophecy that is is taken from the badger lords and their big prophetic wall in salamandastron so joseph kind of explains you know i just put on there what was requested from the the lords of salamandastron and if you want answers as to what this bell means you're gonna have to ask a badger lord because they're the only ones who are privileged to this kind of specific knowledge yeah i can't wait to talk more about that badger lore once we get into a few chapters deeper because we you know we we learn more about 
what the significance of this bell is in this story now. Um, but I love that you point that out because it's it's the the cool um, soft magic kind of underbelly that we see as the current throughout these Redwall books. That is, it's been really fun to track. Yeah. Well, in chapter six, as the Redwall Abbey goers prepare for a midsummer jubilee feast, Gabool plots against his captain Saltar, who in turn plots against Gabool. And Graypatch, one of Gabool's followers, plots against Gabool and Saltar both. Yeah, so by the way, it's Bag and Run are the two otters, the mischief otter twins that are causing Oh, you find out kind of red. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was like <laughs> thumbing through trying. I was like, I can't remember their name. Um, they annoy me, I have to say, as being a guy who likes <laughs> otters in this book. Um, they It's funny because they didn't even forth. rank. <laughs> they didn't rank for me. Like, I didn't clock them. Yeah, they they just, uh, I don't know. They, they're very antagonistic in this. It's like you have... Um, it's like you have two of um uh who what was the otter in uh oh oh um cheek cheek yeah it's like having two younger cheeks like that are running around <laughs> just causing all kinds of problems um yeah but this this whole three-way plot uh, between gray patch and gabool and saltar is so much fun like <laughs> and, and we know that there's going to be a big conflict that comes from this. Um, very early on, I'm rooting for Gray Patch. Like, I really genuinely am just, I'm rooting for him. Like, I, I really love, I really love this um, part in the story. Um, I, I, I'll talk about this more later. Uh, so, but I'm going to give a statement out now. Gray Patch is the true villain of this book. <laughs> it's a hot Ooh. take. Gray Patch is the true villain. We'll, we'll dive we'll divulge more as we get to learn more about him. Okay. All right. I'll hold you to that for sure. Well, in chapter seven, the mouse maid calling herself storm Gullwhacker wakes up on the beach surrounded by toads and frogs. The frogs seem to want to take storms pool of water, but she puts up a considerable fight over her preferred territory as storm seems close to losing the fight. She's rescued by a trio of hares who offer to take Storm to better accommodations than the beach. The trio, Colonel Clay, Han Rosie, and Brigadier, Brigadier Time, escort Storm to their friend Packatug, a rotund squirrel from the woods. The hares consult with the paranoid squirrel about escorting Storm to Redwall to assist in regaining her memory. I gotta say that I really love seeing more toads in Redwall. Like we had, <laughs> we had toads kind of show up in. Uh, I believe it was uh, in Mossflower, right? Yeah. <laughs> so we haven't seen some toads in a while, but man, I really love the kind of barbarian tribal toads that come out <laughs> and have their pitchforks, and they they want their source of water. We also learned that Goldwacker is just as dangerous and as lethal as rat death right <laughs> uh matthias's sword, <laughs> I don't know about sword. As lethal, but but definitely definitely as as memorable and i think that it speaks to storm's capacity for violence that she yeah, just takes her... a knotted rope and just beats the ever-loving heck out of all of these like frogs and toads 
she also has pinpoint accuracy with this knotted rope where she's bobbing frogs between the eyes and knocking knocking them over like it's it's incredible to see how dangerous she is with a knotted rope heck if you give her two she might be unstoppable (laughs) (laughs) it's a pretty pretty easy resource to you know like weaponry to 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 make if you just have knotted rope that's kind of swollen up by the sea, but it's intense. I, I literally put in the notes, Goldwacker is as dangerous as Rat. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. I envision Mariel now just rolling into battle like Kratos, just swinging. <laughs> like, yes, yes. Ropes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly how it feels for sure. Uh, the other thing is I love this, this hair trio with uh, Clary, Rosie, and Time. It's just really cool to see this long patrol right that's what they are they're mm-hmm. they're a patrol part of the long patrol um and you know i love the hairs in Redwall. you know i've got basil's name tattooed on my back it's <laughs> it is so cool to see them show up i really wish that we got more time with them because it seems like they pop up they help in need and then we don't see them for a little bit um but yeah. it's I I think that this is very intentional by Jake's to introduce these familiar fighting faces through the long patrol in this, uh, this chapter. It's, it's definitely a lot of fun for me. Yeah. I definitely love anytime a hair makes an appearance and we've got some great characters in this book already. Um, I, this is kind of one of the first chapters where we really start to get a sense of who this storm goal whacker is, um, I remember when I picked up the book, I was like, Storm Gullwhacker, isn't this supposed to be a book about Marielle of Redwall? I'm not sure who this mouse maid is supposed to be. Um, but, you know, of course, she's got amnesia. We kind of know who it is, but it's still fun to see what she thinks of herself, right? Like, what is really her spirit? for the story and the spirit is that she's just a tempest right she's just like kind of unfiltered rage uh and she's just stalwart you can't budge her and i i really admire that in especially in a female character because we've had so few girl characters in the series so far um it's just kind of great to see one with that kind of warrior spirit so yeah, I, I love that, too, where um, when the the hair trio even says to her, like, you don't have a name, like, that's really sad. Let's get you somewhere safe. Um, let's get you to uh, Pakatung, right? Uh, they're they're yeah, trying Pakatung. to get they're trying to get her to get going because I think that she's in danger. And it's just funny because she's very sp- um sternly says like i don't need your help like i don't i don't i also don't want to follow someone who doesn't seem like they can help themselves which we kind of learned that uh pack and tug is um is rotund and uh, is kind of a lazy squirrel is that safe to say i think that's pretty fair although i i think of pack and tug more in terms of like he's your weird conspiracy theorist doomsday prepper um he listens to alex jones on the radio that's who this guy is (laughs) (laughs) he's a part of a maggot cult for sure yeah yeah Yeah, he he's just like he's he's the dude who who un like he's the one who posts stuff constantly to your facebook feed about pizzagate like that's this dude that's what packet is 
Yeah, I love that. Uh, uh, Jake's even writes, Storm jumped up indignantly. Who said I want to be left anywhere with anyone? I've got some... I've got some say in this, you know, besides who needs a squirrel that can't make up his mind, whether he's a beast or a tree. I just think that's a great line because, (laughs) and it kind of shows the difference of, of from storm, as we see from some of these other, um, other uh, woodland creatures that she's, she's running into and kind of experiencing for the first time. Um, yeah, I don't know. This is a really interesting (laughs) dynamic of personalities. I do like Packetug as a character. I think, I think we've seen some of these kinds of characters before. You know, re- we remember Chib with, um, good old you know, Chib. like his, yeah, with Loves with his Chib. like, <laughs> his kind of like pay me for services sort of thing. Um, I think that Packetug fits into the same kind of a little bit of an outsider archetype, and we can definitely tell like he's one of those characters that is just quirky and he's gonna be there for a little bit of time you know just kind of the the salt the salt to uh to storm spice there well in chapter eight dandan and his friends sit around redwall reciting songs to one another as dandan learns to play the flute when it is saxtus's turn to sing he instead recites an old poem he once found in the abbey which alludes to a prophecy few gathered can understand but that might relate to a stranger visiting one day meanwhile gabool faces off with one of his captains saltar which results in saltar's death although gabool has won one of his former shipmates gray patch has absconded with saltar's ship in defiance of gabool and Gabool declares open bounty on Grey Patch. So I'm not going to lie. Reading this first part of this chapter, I think I fell asleep three or four times. This was <laughs> one where I think I texted you too, Trevor, and I said, man, I am just on the struggle with this book. And this was this was the biggest obstacle I've ever had reading a Roundwall book where this just did not interest me at all <laughs> it just it just really didn't <laughs> i will say that the poem is kind of clever because we're now getting this um this uh puzzle uh, that's not through you know an old written artifact or um a, a long lost letter so it's kind of cool to see that in a different delivery um but man this the beginning of this this chapter for me was a struggle to get through um now i wish i would have just powered through you know took a power nap and just got through it because we get to one of the most exciting parts of this book and that has to do with this kind of showdown between uh saltar and gabool and how gabool springs this trap on him he corners him into that corner that has Mm -hmm. the hidden sword which is his demise which is very clever that to kind of get this call back it's like the Chekhov's gun right we knew that this was going to get sprung eventually so it's really cool to see that happen and then we also get um in my opinion one of the coolest names for a ship the dark queen and how it's absconded (laughs) by gray patch this whole dynamic of the um the challenge of authority um gray patches direct challenge of authority to um gabool and gabool's kind of i don't want to say hesitancy because he he you know calls basically um for mutiny on 
against Gray Patch, right? Is kind of what he's saying. Um, yeah, kind of he, he, a bounty. Yeah, he puts out a bounty to all of his gathered uh, guests, right? Um, which is, I, I think, what I love about Kabul is like he's cunning and also fearsome in a fight. Um, and even when he knows I'm, I'm gonna be outclassed, right? Like. I don't think I can beat Saltar in a straight up fight. Well, he just turns the deck against him. He just makes up a way that he's going to maneuver the fight to, to end in his favor. And I think that is an interesting concept as it regards power and how power is held by a lot of these villains. And it's also why I love gray patch because gray patch kind of understands that in order for you to really consolidate power, you have to also have resources. And Grey Patch just steals a ship. He's just like, all right, well, you know, it, it doesn't really matter what you think you're going to do if I'm able to just take what I want and leave with it. Yeah, I'm really glad that you bring that up because it's not that Gabul, Gabul really has the upper hand. I mean, he has upper hand because of the trap, but he almost comes to death in this fight. With he the, almost with, loses, yeah. Yeah, they, they Jake's kind of writes that the sword comes so close that it just like cuts the whiskers on his throat. Like he's really close, but he has that kind of cleverness to prod him with the torch that gets him into the, the trap and, and is his ultimate demise. So, um, but I, I feel like maybe maybe we're just too far removed from the first three books, but I don't remember having a very direct challenge like this happen within the villains or even secondary villains with the main villain in Redwall books. Like we've always kind of seen mm. a secondary villain plot or scheme, but never had this kind of direct challenge. And it just seems like Ray Patch is way more brazen about that than any red wall you know villain that we've seen before i think you're totally right and i think that's what makes gray patch such an interesting kind of counterfoil to what gabool is doing um i love gabool i also think that gabool's you know kind of uh, critical weakness is his pride much like some of the others that we've seen before um but he he has a good reason, I think, to be prideful in that he knows kind of what his limitations are, where they kind of reside, um, and is willing to kind of stack the deck in his favor when he needs to. I think it's here that we get some allusions to that, that people are calling out Gabul, questioning his strength and whether or not he really is as powerful as he seems. Um, because don't they make an allusion to him losing a fight or nearly losing a fight to a mouse maid? Yeah, I can't remember if that's in this chapter, if it actually happens earlier on with uh, maybe it happened when he had his first kind of encounter with Saltair. But um, Grey Patch has this very direct challenge saying that um, Gabul is too dangerous, too wild and too treacherous. And then Grey Patch himself says that if anyone would follow him, follow him. Grey Patch said to us all that any rat who followed him would at least be able to sleep at night without fearing a knife in his back. So he's really kind <laughs> of saying like, I can be a, a better, a better king and a less threatening king. If you all pledge allegiance to me, he's really just trying to cause a mutiny, right? <laughs> that's, yeah. that's kind of what he's doing. So I, I, I think that that's, I don't know. I think that 
it that's interesting i will also say that we get the best ship names i gotta read some off to you maybe we'll do this <laughs> as, as like a vote in our uh on our instagram or something. i think i would love to see a vote yeah because we have okay. the dark queen which is a totally awesome ship name for sure yeah we have the night wake the sea talon the crab claw wave blade black sail uh rat helm and green fang all great <laughs> ship names they're all really rat names too but they're they're definitely really good ship names they're really good ship names though uh they're certainly not what what was um <laughs> what was dinny's name for the ship wasn't it just like the good ship <laughs> yeah good ship it used to be blood wake but yeah good ship yeah, right is... yeah the blood wake <laughs> is a good ship night yeah. queen's a better name it's a great name I, I just I still can't get over that when Denny gets to name a ship, it's like <laughs> I'm just gonna name it Good the equivalent ship. of Bodie McBoatface. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, it's more about the craftsmanship than anything. Right. <laughs> right. Oh man, that's great. Well, in chapter nine. Storm grows tired of being escorted by Packetug, who proves to be too avaricious and paranoid to be an effective guide. After a brief quarrel, the two part ways, leaving Storm lost in the forest on her way to Redwall. Deep in the woods, she comes across a bard named Tarquin, whose jovial nature seems more agreeable than Packetug's. Tark agrees to take Storm to Redwall. I don't really have too many notes on this. I mean, we kind of touched on um, Storm's personality and how that's kind of a, the opposite of Packetug's personality and how they really, this clash seems pretty natural because Packetug, um, he has her blindfolded. He's just, he's very apprehensive about what he wants to do. Um, he's kind of, I don't know, fearful. I don't really know how to describe Packetug. He's just, he's paranoid. He's a, yeah, he's a lunatic. Yeah. Yeah, he's been living then, in his basement for too long. Yeah, and uh, uh, Storm just wants to cut to the chase. She she feels like she's probably better off on her own. Um, being blindfolded doesn't mean that she can be very effective if something was to happen anyway. So it's just kind of silly what's going on with them. And then we get to um, Tarquin, which <laughs> I put in my notes is Basil 1.0, right? <laughs> like There's so many similarities <laughs> between Tarquin and and Basil and their demeanor. Um, you said this in their very, I think it was in our first episode that you said, you know, you meet one hair, you meet them all. We're really starting to see that come out with the, in this comparison of Tarquin to, to Basil. Now, Basil was obsessed with food, but Tarquin <laughs> is obsessed with something else. Do you remember <laughs> what that is, Trevor? He's obsessed with his good old babe, Han Rosie. Yes, he's obsessed with Rosie in the same way <laughs> that Basil talked so much about food and craved food. This hair is horny for Rosie. Like he is it's just. So, it's so funny to me when we find out why Tarquin is not in the Long Patrol. It's so yes, because he. <laughs> uh, oh, Rosie the Hun, you certainly, you are certainly the one. I'll bet my valley life with your cute little nosy, beautiful Rosie, you'd make a lovely wife. 
This is to <laughs> someone who <laughs> met one time, too. It's so funny. It's, that's even funnier is the fact that he's like so in love with this other hair that we've met, right? She was part of that trio. Yeah, she was part um, of the, the Long Patrol earlier. Yeah, right but, but like when you come to find out, like he's only really like talked to her one time and he's just kind of like obsessed like he is the hr disaster waiting to he happen is. right he's like, like pepe Le Pew, you know like you're just like whoa this guy's kind of a freak he needs to calm down yeah i i know that i'm not supposed to laugh so much at this character and to find him so endearing and yet i can't help myself i just i love the idea that he's this this hopeless romantic but the object of his affection barely knows he exists yeah i can't remember I think it's in the next chapter is when he just starts making random comparisons to her. He's like, that's pretty, that's beautiful, but it's not as beautiful as she is. Like, it's, it's, it's just very, like out of nowhere. <laughs> it's very quixotic. It, like, yeah, yeah. I, I definitely get the sense that Tarquin, more than any of the other hair characters we've encountered, is Don Quixote. Like, he thinks of himself <laughs> so much, you know, bigger and better than like he actually is. And, and, Han Rosie is 100% his Dulcinea. He just sings these odes to her kind of endlessly in spite of the fact that they've probably only had one conversation and it may have been something like Tarquin, would you pass the salt and pepper? You know, like it's great. It's so funny. It's great. I, I gotta, I gotta go out there and say he's no Basil. Don't get me wrong, but in a book where we don't have Basil, He'll do just fine. He's 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 <laughs> I agree. I I definitely feel the basil energy in him, but I also feel the energy of that owl from Matabeo. Like he's kind of the marriage of those two characters for me. Oh shit, what was that owl's name? I can't even remember. I can't remember. I, I wanna say it started with a W. Yeah, we'll we'll find it in post. We've already <laughs> forgotten. <laughs> His name was Sir Harry the Muse. Well, in chapter 10, as Redwall celebrates Abbot Bernard's Jubilee, Storm and Tarquin arrive at the Abbey. Storm observes Abbey life with curiosity, but is resistant to being civilized according to their customs. As Mother Mellis forces Storm to bathe and change into suitable clothing, Tarquin's mission to Redwall becomes clearer. Lord Ronblade of Salamandastron has sent the hare to reside permanently as at Redwall in the hopes of strengthening the political ties between the Fire Mountain and the Abbey. Dandon takes to storm immensely after her bath and redressing. Oh, brother. <laughs> okay, so I have a lot of things to cover in this <laughs> chapter. One, we get some really funny moments when Storm comes into into Redwall and is clearly just a fish out of water in this in this scenario. Uh, we have some young Abbey dwellers that are playing a ball game and she decides that she wants to play and she uses Gullwacker to effectively blast the ball out of Redwall. And she's like, cool, this is an easy game. And it's like, that's not how this is supposed to be played. It, it's a very <laughs> funny moment. Um, and then the showdown that she has with Mother Mellis, uh, right? It, that's her name. Shoot, yeah. Yeah, Mellis. Sorry. For some reason, I was like, Constance? I can't remember what badger this is. Um, she has this showdown with Mother Mellis to get bathed. Um, 
it just goes to show how the um the abbey mother <laughs> wants no stinky dwellers here <laughs> They, she effectively just picks her up and dunks her in the bath, like against her will. She's like, you're going to get a bath. It's not going to happen. And I, I didn't have this in my notes, but I, I, when I was reading it, I was like, dang, this is kind of what they did to all the rats after uh, moss flower, where they just scrubbed them a and then bit, sent them yeah. into the world. Yeah. Uh, Redwall just doesn't want to have uh, stinky people. So I think this is a, a commentary that Jake's has about hygiene. <laughs> I love her interactions because she seems so anathema to the spirit of Redwall. She's just like this untamed force of nature. And that sets her in, in clear distinction. And yet it's that warrior spirit that is immediately recognized by Danden. And I think that's why he takes to her so quickly is like he, um, excuse me, he sees in her the many things that i think he admires for himself you know that he aspires to um i think it's a little unfortunate that this just automatically becomes a a relationship i i do not love the trope of there being like one girl character and then she's immediately the love interest i kind of would have been fine without any kind of a love interest at all in this book. But I don't know. It is what it is, I guess. Yeah. It's that, um, that great Michael Scott quote of like, it was, you know, you, you, you learned that she was the hot girl the whole time. She just, she just didn't need her glasses. <laughs> like that's kind of how it feels <laughs> in this instance where Danden is just immediately transformed to love this, uh, female because she's washed like i don't know i agree with you trevor it seems it seems aged (laughs) like it's just not aged great it definitely Um, feels like it's 30 years old (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) which shocking this book is but yeah uh, it's like 34 now isn't it wasn't this 1990 i'm not sure i'd have to have to look Mm -hmm. it up anyway Uh, but yeah that's why i said oh brother because this is just like I don't know. Trope that I don't really get behind, but um, it's not my favorite trope for sure. Yeah. Well, in chapter 11, Ron Blade of Salamandastron reviews notes from his long patrol. His bell, as well as Joseph and his daughter, are all seasons late and missing. And news has arrived of something happening with Gabool's fleet. At night, Ron Blade mulls over Badger prophecy about what is to come, bringing him violent nightmares. On Terramort Island, Gabool interrogates his stolen bell, wishing to understand its, badger's, its badger prophecies. Instead of receiving clear answers, he's chased by nightmares of conflict. Graypatch, meanwhile, attempts to make landfall on the Dark Queen, but his landing party is ambushed by toads. Caught between the toads and Gabool's looming fleet, Graypatch considers his options. Meanwhile, back at Redwall, the Jubilee feast continues, leading to merrymaking and song. Tarquin sings of the long patrol, but Saxtus's recital of the prophetic poem he learned startles Storm, who seems to react to the poem's mysterious rhymes. 
so many prof- prophetic visions in this chapter. Lots we almost have like a, a, a dueling prophecy that's happening. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts first on this one. I've been talking a lot for the beginnings, but yeah, I'd really like to hear your thoughts on this one. So there, there were a couple of things that I really love. Uh, first off, I always love visiting Salamandastron. You're never going to hear me complain about getting an interior view of the Badger Lords and some of their politics. And I feel like, in a way, this is revisiting the same kind of Badger Lord trope that we expected back when we visited with Bor the Fighter, which is kind of this constant awareness of what is going on with sea pirates and that sort of thing. But I love that Ron Blade kind of continues this legacy that we saw with Boar, that we saw with um, Orlando, you know, that we continue to see with these other Badger Lords. And that is thinking of his giant fire mountain as like his realm, right? And like always constantly working to secure the realm and using prophecy to kind of arm him with knowledge of how better to become a protector. So um, the Ron Blade stuff I felt was really, really cool. The other stuff, um, I'm not like I'm, I think the Jubilee feasts for me are probably the the most boring parts of the book. Um, It's necessary. I think for the story going forward that Mary will have some kind of like awakening. Like she went to Redwall specifically to recover her, um, her memory. And so uh, the prophecy kind of being the thing that maybe shakes some stuff loose. That's kind of interesting. I definitely love gray patch and like kind of following his progress although i'm also not entirely sure that this you know moment where he encounters these frogs and they have like a little skirmish i don't know how much that was necessary to kind of like telling gray patch's story um but i think of of this chapter i definitely resonate a lot with the ron blade stuff i'm always down for some badger lore yeah, I, I really love this kind of introduction that we have with the Ron Blade and how he we kind of see how the Long Patrol helps to serve the Badger Lords. And um, they get the report on Grey Patch saying like, hey, we saw the Dark Queen sailing, but it wasn't the right captain. And he's kind of puzzled by it. And then he goes and he kind of consults the wall to figure out what's going on. And I really like how Jake's structures this chapter where he he kind of breaks up the visions are are things that are happening in relationship to the bell. So the Mm. bell rings when Gabool's on his own and he's like kind of spooked by it because he thinks that someone's in the bell, but it's just magically ringing. Um, Mm -hmm. I think this, I want to talk more about this, like with the whole group when we get our whole panel together and especially when we get a few more chapters, but I think this is the descent of his madness in relationship to the bell. I really do, because I don't mm. think the bell was ringing at all. <laughs> I think it's all in his, in his mind. You know, we kind of mm. learn more about that later. But then we also have this um, very fierce moment with Ron Blade where he has his vision where he thinks that someone is uh, that Gabool is stealing the bell or he's um, on the bell. 
and he wakes up and he swings and he ends up cleaving a shield in half. And <laughs> and uh, I think it's Clary comes in and is like, dude, are you good? And he's like, yeah, I go back to bed. And he's like, I don't know. You just shaved that that <laughs> iron shield in half, man. Like, it's crazy. So it, it's cool to see like his his um, raw strength in this moment. But then also mm-hmm. how they're both kind of plagued. Like, I think that Ron Blade is is plagued with the loss of the bell but then at the same time gabool is being tormented with the possession of the bell it's it's kind of weird how it how it's playing in the dynamic you know as you you talk about this stuff i think you strike a chord there's this idea that like prophecy kind of changes the course of a person um and and perhaps knowledge of of prophecy you know creates some tumult so it's like it's like the bell ringing with gabool as gabool is experiencing these kind of prophetic nightmares of himself it it kind of starts to change his demeanor and some of the decisions that he makes and it's the same with ron blade ron blade has these visions of maybe what is coming and he kind of flies off the handle into this crazy rage and and the moment that mariel hears the prophecy of this old red wall poem she starts to like kind of fall into a swoon like it awakens some kind of like primal force or activates her so it's almost like you know the prophecy of these stories are like like they activate the characters around them and and start setting things into motion that may or may not come to pass usually i think they come to pass though yeah it's just it's so interesting how because he he, i'm i'm kind of reading back on the chapter now too gabool is like trying to get answers out of the bell like he's looking it Mm -hmm. over and he's trying to see what what the messages mean and then he even makes a promise like you're going to give me the answers before don't worry. I'm going to get the answers out of you. And then the bell answers back and it spooks him. Like he's terrified. And it even, it, he even uh, Jake's kind of writes is how he jumps in the bed and he's like shivering because the bell keeps, he keeps hearing the bell ringing. Um, where yeah. is that? It, it's <laughs> so, kind of like a power. It, it's like, be careful of what knowledge you seek, right? And, mm, and be yeah. careful of the questions that you ask because you may not be prepared for the answers. This is a motif that shows up in a lot of fantasy literature, but it's also something that I think is like very, very old. You know, like what is the yeah. curse or the burden of, of knowledge? Um, classically, right? Uh, Odin in uh, Norse mythology is like obsessed with trying to uncover the secrets of of his death or uncover the secrets of his um future and and so it drives him to you know these absurd lengths in order to to try to to preserve knowledge to preserve memory um you know leads to him losing his eye he's called the hanged one because you know one mm-hmm. at one time he hangs himself in order to try to to master knowledge over death um and I think that this is just a really awesome mythological kind of piece, this question of knowledge um, and whether or not we should know everything. I The bell is super interesting. I love the kind of pseudo magic that the bell represents, um, whether that be the same kind of prophetic magic that is Im- imbued 
through you know kind of the badger lords into you know kind of common objects um or whether it just be like you know joseph himself is kind of like a this almost mystical kind of craftsperson um he's just able to create you know something that that carries with it a kind of legacy all of its own um the object imbued with power i think is always a really interesting trope in fantasy and and i love that it's the bell in this case yeah real quick i gotta give a huge shout out to uh firebird fantasy because they forgot to print half this page in this chapter so (laughs) i did miss quite a bit um that that quality printing from firebird (laughs) they are really bad (laughs) yeah i don't think i've mentioned this on mic but in redwall i had um almost a full not a full chapter but i probably had a sequence of three or four pages um that were just printed like askew (laughs) they just weren't even lined (laughs) up straight this is a a good start (laughs) that's pretty bad well, in chapter 12, Gabul's fleet finally arrives, but he needs to convince them to pursue Grey Patch. He holds court in his island fortress, making a broad show of generosity while he simultaneously sows the seeds of discord among each ship's crew. The fleet leaves to find Grey Patch. Meanwhile, Storm has fallen into a faint upon hearing Saxtus's poem. In the infirmary, Simeon gives her a draft that hypnotizes her into revealing what happened before she arrived at Redwall. As it turns out, Storm is really named Mariel, and she is the daughter of Joseph the Bellmaker, a famous artisan whose bell is being shipped to Salamandastrum. As their shrew-crewed vessel makes its way through the Western Sea, to the Fire Mountain, it is attacked by Saltar and the Dark Queen. The vessel's crew is slain and enslaved, and Joseph is taken to Gabul on Terramor. Ter- excuse me, Terramort Isle. Mariel spends some time as a slave on Gabul's island, where she witnesses his cruelty. But her spirit cannot be subdued, and she faces off with Gabul in a duel that nearly costs Gabul his life. Mariel is pushed from the cliffs of Terramort, where the story began after her plunge into the sea. With this information now recorded, the Abbey Dwellers leave Mariel to sleep. There's so much that happens in this chapter. I put in the notes... (laughs) I really love this chapter, but man, this happens so quickly. Like there's just so much stuff <laughs> that starts to happen here. Um, first, I want to set off the conversation with Gabul and this um, kind of show that he puts on with mm-hmm. the second in command, if you will, of, of this uh, pirate fleet where he invites them all to come into his fortress. And then he does this whole um, manipulation where he like gives up his sword. He does this sword play where he's like, here, look, you don't know how to fight. So I'll kind of teach you how to fight kind of a thing. You want these spoils. You can have all these spoils. And he just kind of gives everything away. But then he does this. Okay. Now that I've given you everything, you guys have to do something for me. And then he has this kind Mm -hmm. of cruel twist at the end where he's like, Oh, by the way, that sword and want that sword back. Unless you want to do 
a show for it, like a show of arms. And if you don't want to do that show of arms, I'll, I'll just take the sword. And so it's this really interesting kind of manipulation with his, his bounties where he indebts all these, he really causes a mutiny, right? Like there's no, no. Well, yeah, doesn't, doesn't he convince all of the second in commands of the, of these ships to like kill their captains in, in the, the brawl over treasure? He does. Yeah. Yeah. He kind of sets them up to be indebted to him. Um, yeah. Through, through the show of like, he lets them basically just raid all of his plunder. Right. Like, right. Um, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure how he gets this sword back though. I'm going to actually thumb through that. I think he does. He does kind of a wink, wink, give me the sword back or else we'll kill you kind of a thing. But yeah, I believe that's correct. It, from my recollection, <laughs> mind you, it's been a little over a month since I read this part of the book, but to my recollection, he, he just makes some vague threats that uh that ends up with him getting his sword back it's very interesting like i i i I think that this is kind of clever of jake's to set this up in this i don't know dynamic i guess between Mm -hmm. kabul and the and the second in commands which we know is just another trap that he's gonna spring yeah it it just shows that everything is a tool for Gabul to get what he wants. And and that's the whole point, right? Like treachery is his game. And I can't think of a better swashbuckling way to like deal with this, right? Um, because if everything's just a tool for you to get what you want, Gabul just is willing to sacrifice anything. There's nothing precious to him. And everything is is just a pawn in whatever game he's playing even his great plunder or his great treasures are just there in order for him to consolidate power. And he's going to use that to do whatever it is that he wants. And it's not as if any of it's going to get outside of his reach anyway, because he's constantly playing these games multiple steps ahead of everyone else. So even though it's like, Oh, I'm going to, show you this you know magnanimous display of wealth come and and receive your your plunder you know he's doing that with the specific intention of knowing that in this free-for-all melee he's going to dispatch of his enemies and he's going to consolidate the power that he wants over the people who feel an indebtedness to him um and and all of that is in service of just finding gray patch and bringing gray patch yeah, we kind of learned something about um, Gabul in Mariel's retelling of what happened in this kind of slumber speech that she has. And that's that the only way that Gabul won in his 1v1 with Skolgor um, is because Mariel accidentally knocks him over in the very beginning of their fight, and that gives him the upper hand. But he thinks that Mariel tried to sabotage him um, to give uh, Skolgor the upper hand. And so that's why he punishes her. She she has to grab Skolgor's sword in, in order to fend him off. But she's basically overwhelmed and knocked out. And so I think it goes to sh- like we're getting little bits and pieces of <laughs> Gabul's really not. I mean, he's come close a few times now mm-hmm. and he's. Um, uh, he's definitely mad. Like, don't get me wrong. He's he is genuinely genuinely wild. But we start to learn that he's like 
had a lot of really close calls. I mean, he had this one. He had the one with Saltar where he only won because of the trap. Like, he mm-hmm. is definitely not what people think he is. Um, he dances yeah, the edge really, really well. He does. And, and I think this is one of the reasons why Gabul is such a great. I like Gabul a whole lot more than I liked like Sarmina, for example. Oh, really? Uh, okay. Yeah, be, because I think Gabul is always dancing this blade. Like he's always kind of maneuvering around. And and to me, that's just very swashbucklery. Like, you know, he's very much the pirate that I would expect him to be. Yeah, and we, we get to what you kind of alluded earlier is that the the word spreads that Gabul almost lost to this maiden, <laughs> this war maiden in this 1v1 showdown. And that's why he throws her body into the sea because he says, we can't have any of that and we need to get rid mm-hmm. of her. Um, and uh, he, he quickly tries to kind of hush up the crew from seeing this happen where he was almost bested. Uh, so uh, yeah, there's, there is a lot to really like about him. I think it's interesting that like when we compare Gabul to people like Clooney, um, mm-hmm. I think that he's not as ruthless as Clooney or Slagar is. Mm-hmm. Like he really is, like you said, like on the edge way more than any of these other villains that we've had. Um, yeah. Which, which <laughs> it, he's almost just kind of, uh, it's more of a show than anything, you know, he's just, yeah. I, yeah, I, I think that's what I like about him. I mean, call him Gabul the wild, right? Um, there is, there's just this sense that he's like, he's always triple deal in the deck, you know? And he's like, he's just, <laughs> he's playing things by ear and, and dancing that razor's edge. Um, but it's almost like, you know, he's playing a game of life and death. And that's just very interesting. I think for a villain to always constantly almost be on the precipice of losing. Um, but the more victories he gains, the more he feels a kind of invincibility in the game that he's playing. Is there anything that you wanted to follow up on with uh, Storm's revelation that she's really Mariel and, and any <laughs> of the backstory that we get? I, I don't have very many notes on this. It's more about just we we know the what has happened now, right? Like we have it yeah. all kind of filled in as to how the bell comes in Gabul's possession, how Marilyn gets cast to sea, um, and yeah. who she tr- truly is. So to me, this wasn't a huge yeah. revelation. I did like how this was kind of broken up in this kind of narrative. Um, um, it, it's kind of broke up in this narrative from... Um, who who's writing it? Oh shoot! It's um, ooh, it's I brother check. Hubert. Yeah, Hubert. Sorry, yeah, I was like the the recorder, the um, Abbott recorder. Yeah, brother Hubert is kind of writing these as these kind of entries that they piece together over the course of a few days. So I I did think that that was pretty clever, and it's yeah. like you know we're getting this flashback, this retelling that I really yeah. liked a lot. Um, By the I, way. Did it, did you catch the the name of Terramort Isle uh, and and what that breaks down to like what that actually means as a word? I did not. What okay, so so Terra, of course, is like Earth, Earth or land, land, right? We we usually use it for land, and then Mort uh, is is a word that that means death. So literally, he's 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 basically saying it the the island of death. 
Oh, okay. That makes yeah. sense. I, I just, these are the little sneaky touches to Jake's naming conventions that I think just sell me on the whole world that we're talking about. I was sold on Tim Ballista, so you don't have to tell me about <laughs> I know, I know what Jake's likes to do with some word finagling. <laughs> oh man, that's great. Oh, anyway, well, moving on. In chapter 13, Grey Patch, who, fearful of Gabool's fleet and being spotted by Salamandastrin, looks to take his boat further inland, using a well-known river passage to the north. Just as he begins to move his ship to the riverbed, one of Gabool's ships catches up with him. Back at Redwall, Mariel has regained her full faculties again and prepares to break out on a journey to Terramort. In an effort to assist her, the Abbey-goers begin searching for travel notes from Field Rowan, a former Abbey-dweller who likely traveled to Terramort once upon a time. I have no notes on this chapter. It's just a lot of setting up. Uh, it is a lot of setting up. It, it, I feel like the big revelation was great, but now it's like, all right, let's let's get into Act Two. I almost probably would have ended Book One on Mariel waking up, and then move on to you know Book Two being maybe a little longer. Um, but yeah, this feels like the setup to an Act Two. Yeah, I agree. And you you can see by the time, too, this is a really big um, this is a really big book. Um, mm -hmm. It's almost half the book of of Mariel. Yeah. So we're we're with this. I think it's at one hundred and seventy seven pages. Um, right. So huge section that we cover in this first chapter, but or in this first book. But I'm with you, Trevor. I, he should have just cut it off right here. Yeah. Well, chapter 14, Grey Patch wages battle against the gr the crew of the Green Fang. Mm -hmm quickly routing his pursuers' forces. Turning fire against the other ship, he covers his tracks and burns the evidence of his battle. Unfettered, he turns his attention back to pushing upriver toward Mossflower. At the Abbey, Field, Field Rowan's field guide is just as unintelligible as any other riddle in Redwall, but Mariel determines to set out on her own just the same. Gabool is visited by phantom terrors about conflicts to come, while Simeon is visited in his sleep by Martin the Warrior, who lends him his magnificent sword to give to Danden in preparation for his journey with Mariel. I do have notes on this one. <laughs> Specifically, <laughs> we see how... Um how gray patch is a really competent commander in this skirmish skirmish that totally. he has and he even tells his crew like don't get don't jump from the boat yet because we want them to go into sh the shallow shore where they're least mobile and we'll just snipe them from the boat essentially like i think he hits up he like has a sling or something or maybe it's a, a crossbow I don't remember, mm -hmm. um, but he's so tactful in how this battle should happen between these two great vessels um, in a relatively um, small space as well. Because mm -hmm. I think they're in river, they're up river, 
Um, yeah. So I just I was reading this as like Gray Patch is literally not someone to be messed with. Like this, he is way more competent <laughs> as a second command. Well, now you know well, under his own sale. Um, and this is Gray Patch's beef with Gabool. Yeah, uh, Gray Patch was was the right hand man that won Gabool so many different battles um, because Gabool is crafty for sure. But there's right. this sense that Gabool will just, you know, Gabool will set fire to his own ship if it means that he's going to win. And I think Grey Patch is a lot more sensitive to, um, you know, kind of mirroring his losses. So rather than dancing that night, that knife's edge, you know, he calls out some really keen battle tactics that help him win this fight very decisively. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, the other thing is we we really start to see the unraveling of Gabul and his nightmares. I mean, it's to the point mm-hmm. where he even starts taking no sleep because he's haunted whenever he the bell is ringing in his mind when he's trying to sleep. And so he can't sleep because of the sound of the of the bell. Right. It's that yeah. he's being he's being haunted by these phantoms. But then he's also um, he's just he's unable to sleep because of the noise from the bell. Uh, we also get this. I don't know. I don't know what's going on with Martin. The, <laughs> the this this moment seemed kind of out of place to me. Um, that the it's the ghost of Martin, right? It has to. It is the ghost of yeah. Martin visits Simeon and and right and tells them you should you should take Rat Death. Yeah, to, you need um, to take Rat Death over to uh, uh Dandon. Like Dandon's gonna go on this journey, and he needs to go equipped with. With the sword, which which is the embodiment of the spirit of Martin. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. The reason why I say this is out of left field is that the this kind of destroys my entire um, narrative thus far that there's some kind of magic with the tapestry because the tapestry is still being woven and mm-hmm. Martin still comes to visit. So it it can't be the tapestry yet, right? Like it's not finished. I I don't know. I don't don't, don't think so, but I think it is the spirit of, I mean, the spirit of, of Martin is not it. There's a literal spirit, right. That like shows up and does and says stuff. Um, But I think too, that the spirit visits those who embody Redwall the most or the best. So um, the idea that that the spirit shows up to Simeon in particular and not to Danden, um, I think is really, really important. But I think it's also important that Danden gets the sword, right? Because Martin is kind of of signaling like Danden will will carry the sword. Um, Danden's uh, an important enough you know, figure in, in the line, in the lineage, the, the blood of Redwall. Um, but I think it's Simeon who best, who best represents the spirit of Redwall in general. And so he's the one who's given this symbolic duty of carrying the sword to its new bearer. Yeah. It's cool to see. I, I, I do like, I, I have to rephrase what I just said. I think it's cool to see this, um, this, transition of the blade to Danden and how this is setting up Danden for his quest, right? His quest, he's going to go yeah. help Muriel. 
what I'm saying is it seemed out of place that it happens because I thought there was some kind of connection between the tapestry and Martin. Mm. The tapestry is not done. So there goes my theory. Mm. And the reason why I say that is in, in, in Redwall in book one, we yeah. see that when, um, when shadow is stealing the tapestry, Martin mm-hmm. speaks out to, to Matthias, right? And says, Hey, you got to help me. Yeah. I'm being stolen. So that's why there's the yeah. connection. Yeah. I think you're, you're not wrong. I think there is a strong connection to the tapestry and the illusion that the tapestry is being woven is really important. I think maybe let's put a pin in this um, to see how some of the other so stories react to that. Cause I, you may <laughs> not be entirely off base, um, but I, I don't remember, I frankly don't remember, you know, later stories enough to, to be able to say definitively whether or not it has something to do with that tapestry. We do know that the tapestry has magic powers, um, you know, or, or at least is kind of the residing force for a lot of the spirit of Martin. But um, yeah, we'll, we'll come to see in future books, I think. In chapter 15, Packetug tracks gray patches rats as they hide their ship in moss flower although he provides them small mischief he's ultimately outwitted by the sea rats and captured the wreckage of the green fang is spotted by the long patrol and lord ron blade dispatches some hares to investigate up the shoreline shortly after dawn mariel sets out from redwall on her journey only to be surprised by tarquin who joins her on her trek further up the road she's also joined by dandan armed with martin's sword still later in their journey they encounter dury quill a hedgehog from the abbey who wants to join the adventure before they can all decide to continue though they're confronted by a heron named iraktan i don't really know what Packetug's plan was here. <laughs> this was just so <laughs> poorly set up. He hides and tries to make it seem like they're being stung. Or sorry, he has mm-hmm. a blow blow gun, right? Yeah, blow gun. And he's yeah. blowing darts to, to to try to make it seem like he's being they're they're being stung. Mm-hmm. But he so clearly is underestimates what they're able to do and they're able to sniff him out so quickly and they capture him like yeah i, I just don't I don't of the guy know. with an ar style paint gun Ooh. Such, <laughs> such a <laughs> yeah it's such a, a doomsday prepper thing to do i've got all this tactical gear and i'm going to use it and then you just like <laughs> are bad is, at it that is exactly the vibe i don't know why this guy is is from texas but he just is you know uh, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen this this meme before that's been floating around Reddit of people with the overstacked SUVs or like overstacked uh, off-road vehicles where they just buy all this gear to like that they put on like Jeeps and stuff where it's like, oh, it's got like a camping bed on top and all these like preparational things or whatever. <laughs> and they're driving these vehicles in the most suburban areas and it's just <laughs> so dumb because it's like what you think you're gonna get trapped here why do you need all this stuff with you why is this here so funny. yeah i don't i don't know i don't really know what packetug's plan was except to you know he's like i'm gonna annoy these guys to he but then he gets captured and it's like all right well you just wasted a lot of your time 
Yeah, that's exactly how this feels is that he's just like, I'm going to get him. And then he ends up just getting caught instantly. Um, but narratively, this Jake's kind of has to write it this way because he needs to give Gray Patch a way to get into Redwall, right? We can we yeah. already see that happening. He needs a way in, and that's what he's going to do. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what right. Um, I don't have much to say about Mariel and her party except that this seems to me to be um, just another kind of reiteration of the classic um, traveling party. Uh, this kind of happens with Math- Matthias a little bit. I definitely get Martin vibes. Um, Super Martin vibes. I'm so yeah. glad you said that. Yeah. I yeah. I do think it's kind of clever how as she keeps going, she keeps running into people. Like we have Dandin that shows up and then we have Dury that shows up. Right? Dury, yeah. Dury Quill. Yeah. Yeah. And Dury so it's just because yeah. Dandin's like, we got to go and meet Dury. He's further ahead. And she's like, what are you talking about? And then uh, he's there making breakfast. Like it's very mm-hmm. clever that that's his, kind of the introduction. But we got that trio. I was like, we got the moss flower yeah. crew back again. We got a yeah. mole, or in this case, it's a hedgehog. Hedgehog, yeah, yeah. Two yeah, mice. We're ready to roll. And a, a a hair. Yeah, it it feels it feels like just the the gang is all together. So let's go on a road trip. For yeah, sure. this is this is your party, right? As you're yeah. as you're hitting the the new campaign. Yeah, yeah. Well, in chapter 16, Packetug is interrogated by Grey Patch about the location of good plunder, which leads to the squirrel betraying the location of Redwall. Even as Grey Patch intends to move on the Abbey, the long patrol encounter considerable resistance from Oikamon's toads, leading to a skirmish from which the long patrol narrowly manages to escape. Mariel and her party manage to subdue the heron, but find that their journey has only begun. Guided by the rhymes of Field Rowan, they navigate pike-infested waters on their way further north. What do you think? Should we just run on through the next I couple of I have no here? notes for this. <laughs> I, I, I also feel like this one happens pretty quickly, too. Like, it we does. have just, like, one thing, boom, 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 after the other. Um, yeah. I don't even remember how they subdue the heron. Do you remember how they do that? I think it involves gray or uh, uh, gull whacker and and just some cleverness. This is going to drive me crazy. Did I black out while reading? Is this a page that wasn't fully printed? (laughs) It's very possible. I mean, I don't I don't for for the record, I don't remember it either. It was not that memorable to me (laughs) that I took studious notes about it. Whatever. Let's move on. (laughs) (laughs) If I, I with not having any notes on this, I don't know if I just had you know, see, uh, senioritis for, uh, for the holiday break or for the holiday just, season. Yeah. yeah. Then yeah. it th- wasn't memorable. Well, in chapter four, 17 at Fort blade, Gert Gabool's insomnia plagues him to the point of murderous rage. The search for gray patch is led nowhere. And the bell in Gabool's possession is slowly driving him mad with its phantom chimes. Meanwhile, Mariel continues her march, this time coming across an adder who nearly kills Dury Quill. Martin intervenes to awaken Mariel to danger, and she bests the adder and moves on with her party. Up ahead, they encounter the otter and his wife, a landmark foretold in Field Roan's notes. Remind me, is this the first 
instance that we start to learn about Asmodeus, or did I just dream that? Yeah, I think we we learn about the um, because this is an adder. This is an adder that pops up, but mm-hmm. it's in a vision that Martin calls out to Dandon, saying, "You guys are in trouble. Wake up! There's there's like a snake nearby." And they get up, and then it's Dury that says, "It's just a grass snake." Um. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I maybe it was just a question that I had was like when like what's the relation there um yeah it, it is a real adder um yeah I, I don't have a whole lot more to to kind of put in here um except that you know it's just more road trip goodness i think uh you gotta expect to go out into strange new lands and see some strange new things and uh it's pretty clear by now that field roan and his rhymes are going to become more clear as we traverse through Mossflower County and see the same kind of sites that he originally did. Yeah. The only other not- note that I had was the otter and his wife was, is the red wall equivalent of the, the Argonath from Lord of the Rings. So they're like, <laughs> hey, there they are. And, you know, yeah, that's the show. Pretty cool. yeah. I yeah. like that a lot. Well, in chapter 18, which closes out book one, Gray Patch approaches Redwall and immediately begins devising a plan to break in, all while the Abbey dwellers are unaware of the threat looming outside their walls. Mariel makes camp beside the Otter and his wife, puzzling over the meaning of the next part of Fieldrone's riddle. Gabool's fleet sails south in search of Gray Patch, and all parties across the land wait for the next day and what fate might bring. You can tell that we're getting towards the end of this chapter because our notes are real thin for this. <laughs> I, I don't have any notes on this. I I think this is obviously just setting up for what the main crisis will be in book two. Um, yeah. I will say that I we kind of said this earlier. I think this chapter should have ended a lot or this book should have ended a lot earlier because yeah. all this would make so much more sense in context of what's happening in book two. Yeah, I felt like the pace of this book really breaks the moment that Mariel gets her her memory back because we spend so much time you know kind of building up building up when is storm going to realize that she's Mariel and how does Mariel even fit into this story right we have allusions to it with Joseph the bell maker we know that this is Mariel but she needs to find out for herself and of course Redwall Abbey has to come into some kind of uh uh relevance you know to the the story of mariel so i think tying all of that together worked pretty well in book one but i definitely just would have i would have stopped it so much earlier (laughs) and yeah woven stuff into the fabric of book two yeah and it's called the maid of the sea too like it, it would make sense that that whole first book is really up to the climax of her realizing who she is well everyone realizing who she is as well so yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> Strange ed- editing on on uh, on Jake's part, but yeah. Well, uh, let's go through maybe some memorable characters and some villains, and and we'll kind of um, wrap up with our thoughts on book one. So, memorable characters. Uh, I spotted a number of what I felt were some pretty interesting characters 
in this first part. Of course, there's Danden and there's Mariel. Um, they're going to be the heroes of the story. But we also have Saxtus, Simeon, Colonel Clary, Han Rosie, Brigadier Thyme, Pakatug, Tarquin L. Woodsorrel, Ron Blade Widestripe, and Dury Quill. What do you think? Who was your favorite of this cast of characters? I I know this is the the basic answer, but I gotta give it to Storm or Mariel. I think that she's the most um I also I kind of feel like she doesn't have a whole lot of screen time in this this mm. first book. Um but I really think that she has the strongest personality that is so much different than these archetypes that we've seen so much in the the previous books. Like, I really think that in this new um, kind of landscape of, of Redwall that we're learning in this book, she really is the strongest character that's here. And she has mm. um, she kind of subverts a lot of things that you expect from the Redwall hero that we've seen in some of the other books. So I really like Storm. I, I, I think that her story is is interesting. And I think it's really interesting as it relates to Gabool, as we will kind of talk about with the mm-hmm. villains. But for her, for me, she's she's definitely the winner. Yeah, that's really interesting that that you bring that up. Um, I really love Mariel in kind of contradistinction to some of the other characters because she feels like so much more of a primal force. Um, you know, she's she's really guided by this kind of black and white, like I'm going to do what I'm going to do, um, and and you know why 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 do I need your help? I'm just going to do it. Um, I think that. I hope her arc and from what I remember of her arc is kind of a learning the importance of community and, and important, you know, the importance of kind of like building friendships and the need for that kind of those close bonds, those tight bonds. Um, But yeah, she's a really compelling character. I think in this first part, at least in terms of her, um, her feelings and, and, and the way that she kind of comports herself in comparison to the other heroes that we've seen from the, the previous three books. Um, for me though, I, I mean, I'm always just going to be a sucker for a really good hair character. So I feel like Tark is just so much fun. And anytime he's on the page, I'm like, I really love this weird kooky character. Um, I love his, verbosity i love the the kind of humor that he brings to the rest of the cast and and the rest of the story and i feel like he serves as a really great foil to mariel because if mariel is all no nonsense he is consummate nonsense and i think that they bounce off of each other in a really welcome way I feel like for me, Danden is the most boring <laughs> like hero that we've encountered. Um, he's really hard for me to care about. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because I and I'll talk about this more when we, when we do our review episode. Um, but I really thought the introduction of Danden was the weakest we've had of like the main character. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll kind of go through the reasons why when when everyone's here to talk about it, but. He just seems if he's supposed to be a replacement for Matthias or Martin, um, it's, he just is not even Gomp. I don't I don't think he I'm hoping that we see a, a turnaround in his character or his character mm. arc um, outside of 
um, or outside of this book one and book two and, and three. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's definitely, I, I agree with you. I think he's the weakest of the group. Yeah. Well, let's talk villains. Um, there were really kind of only four, what I would consider major considerable villains. Uh, Gabool, of course. And then there's Saltar, Patch, and Oikamon, who is that toad character that keeps showing up in the, the marsh. Toad. The toad king. Yeah. For me, <laughs> it's got to be Gabool. I think that he, his introduction is so iconic, in my opinion. Him, you know, doing the war cry over the the storm at, at sea. Um, that's super cool. But then I really like this kind of dynamic. I think he's kind of a better Sarmina. I know that's maybe a hot take, but I think that <laughs> he does all the kind of things that Sarmina does where you're both fierce, but also like losing your mind. I think that he's he's kind of a better iteration of that. Um, and I think mm. that him coming in close several times when with his battle with Saltair, um, and his battle with um, Mariel. Um, it's just really kind of, I don't know, there's a lot of depths to him that I, I, I like. And uh, I'm genuinely excited to see what this <laughs> this road to madness is with the bell mm-hmm. um, in book two and three. Yeah, I love Gabool. Um, <laughs> I, I really, I really, really love Gabool. I feel like, you know, that in, in a series that really has so many villains and not every villain is slam dunk. Um, I feel spoiled by these first four books because I feel like we get just great villain after great villain. Um, Clooney's an awesome villain. I loved Sarmina. I really love Slagar. Um, but it seems like Gabool has a little bit of all of them. Um, he's yeah. kind of like the distillation of all of the kind of evil venomous traits that Jake's gives his, his villains. But what makes him so much more fun to me is that of course he's a Corsair, you know, he's a, he's a pirate character and we haven't had very many of those so far outside of Clooney. And he's just like, like I said, he just dances that knife's edge in a way that I find really entertaining where you just never quite know how he's going to come out on top of this. Um, and, and you, you also just never know, like what is the gambit that is going to lead him to his downfall? Um, where is that coming in the book? I'm really excited to see where it eventually comes. Yeah. I do want to take a quick moment to shout out gray patch though, because I, I think that gray patch is the biggest threat, um, in this book one. I think he's, a, I think he's more competent than, uh, Kabul is. I think he's more sane than Kabul is. I'll argue this when we do a review that I really do think that he's the actual villain of this book, but I don't think he's the more interesting character. <laughs> I think Kabul is like way mm. more interesting, but gray, gray patch, I think is really the threat. Yeah. I, uh, I agree with you. I I think this is going to be interesting to kind of see how they all shake out um, in book two and in book three. I'm really looking forward to books two and three. Um, I I feel like kind of like you, I felt like book one was a little slow for me, but it picked up. And and as I grew closer and closer to that finish of book one, the more and more I was like, this is really shaping up to be a, a jamming book. I think this is going to yeah. be a fun one. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I definitely agree. 
All right. Well, I think that does that for book one, The Maid of the Sea. I think I got that one right this time. No, I didn't. The, the Maid, maid from, the from the Sea. Oh, man. This is <laughs> going to be a new joke between us, huh? Always oh, getting the, <laughs> the, book, the book wrong. Uh, Trevor, thank you so much for doing this. It's great to be back in 2024 and be here for season four. Glad we planned it that way. Um, I'm really excited to get into more Redwall and for our future episodes. Um, if you like this episode and you made it this far, we thank you so much for that. Um, and if you want to support the show, the best way that you could do that is to leave a review. Um, wherever you're listening to this, if it's Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts or Stitcher Premium or whatever it is, um, if you could give us a, uh, a review and just star rating or whatever it is, that helps out a ton. Um, if you like our voices, particularly Trevor's voice, you can check them out at uh, Slate House Presents. You have a crazy slate of guests for 2024, and I'm shocked as to how many interviews you have out already. So that's really exciting. Yeah, we're Anything? coming up um, coming up on our 100th episode this month. Wow. So, yeah. It, granted, there have, I think we've actually passed 100 because there were a couple that we didn't number um, that were just like kind of special episodes. Uh, but yeah, in, in terms of the numbered episodes, we're coming up on a hundred. I can't believe that I'm here. Um, and I can't believe the many, many voices that are yet to come that I've booked for the show. Um, just in the immediate future, you can look forward to, uh, S.E. Porter. You can look forward to Amy Avery. You can look forward to Robert O'Tone. Um, all really great writers and really interesting, and yeah, 2024 is definitely a time to get invested in Slayhouse Presents if you're a fantasy reader, uh, because I'm I'm gonna have some really cool fantasy voices on the show. I've I can't say too much so far um, because I am still working through booking some of them, but I I think there's gonna be some real like <laughs> big voices that are coming to the show in 2024. So. Yeah, it's super exciting. And being a fantasy guy myself, you know, I'm going to be trying to worm in on some of those interviews. It's it's <laughs> too good to pass up. Uh, no, that's really exciting. And it's it's cool to hear. I can't believe you're at 100 already. It feels like you just started. It's crazy. Not that long yeah, I, 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 I can't believe we've gotten that far. And, and I also am just so excited that we've done as many episodes as we've done of Books and Badgers. 2024 is is going to be a wild ride and i i can't wait to get deeper in the series with you yeah lots to look forward to and if you want to stay up to date on those things that we're doing uh be sure to follow us on instagram or threads at books in badgers that's with an n in between books in badgers uh, you can also message us any questions that you have um we still want to do a topic show we're just kind of waiting for questions in order to do a full episode for that so send in your questions uh, send in your comments what you think of the show all helps us out a ton and then lastly you can email any questions that you may have at booksinbadgers at gmail.com again that's books and badgers with an n between the two words uh, that's a great way to get in touch with us as well well again thank you so much for this and we'll see you in the next one bye